yourself this morning? How many feel you cleared your calculator this morning? Your soul. Hallelujah. Clear yourself. Don't just keep adding up without clearing yourself. Get it clear. There's repentance for us today. Praise God. And uh, Brother Ellard introduced him as from Minnesota, and that was all right. He never even corrected it. Praise God. But I think we ought to clear it this morning. <laughs> He's not from Minnesota. He's from Wisconsin. We're glad to have him. Aren't you enjoying the good teaching that he's doing to us? Praise God. You know why I believe we had what we had yesterday afternoon at 1 o'clock? Because the teaching of the Word of the Lord yesterday morning. And he just begins to lay the foundation every morning. It just begins to stack up. And, and uh, then we begin to have explosions. And it just keeps building and keeps building. I want him to come and do the same thing this morning. Praise God. You just worship the Lord and... Let the word of the Lord enter into your heart. Brother Grant, we're glad to have him. Let's give him a good hand of applause. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Praise God. Praise God. Are we having camp meeting or are we having camp meeting? Praise God. Oh, hallelujah. We'd make that hand clap for Jesus a lot louder. Praise God. Oh, hallelujah. Praise God. Praise God. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. You may be seated. I'll tell you, I've enjoyed this. You are such a beautiful group of people. Seriously, I looked out across the congregation and I didn't see one ugly person. Not one. Praise God. I was asked when I pastored in East Texas to go down and, uh, of course, the, the, the little community I pastored in, we started church there, was, there were only 740 people. I thought it was a big city. I never gave much thought, you know, to but I was asked to go to a little tiny place and preach. And I went to preach a youth rally there, and I think the, the uh, youngest person was way up in the 60s. And nobody smiled the whole service. Uh, I mean, nobody smiled. And uh, I don't, there's just something about, you know, our holiness standards and such that uh, they're very, very compatible with joy and peace. But uh, you put a lot of uh, long hair and uh, proper dress and such on a drab face. You know, it's like painting a racing stripe on a 1939 Studebaker pickup truck. It doesn't, <clears throat> doesn't seem to work for some reason. I didn't see one good-looking person there. Not one. I tried my best to get people to smile, and they just wouldn't smile. Praise God. But everybody's been so happy about serving the Lord and happy about being at camp and happy about being in the service of the Lord. I like to see people happy. Praise God. Brother Doyle Spears is one of the most positive pastors that I have ever had any dealings with. He pastored my mom and dad and two of my sisters in East Texas. They uh, took up an offering for us when we went to Wisconsin. We preached two weekends for them. But... Before we left, I was in the supermarket, and I turned the corner, my wife and I, and we ran across a sister there in the church now. She's not in any way indicative of his ministry. But uh, this sister, uh, she said, oh, how are you, Brother Grant? I said, great. She said, wish I could say that. And I said, oh, what's wrong? She says, everything that can be wrong is wrong. She said, you know how it is. She told me where she worked. She worked over at a dry cleaner's place. 
And she said, you know how it is when you're a Christian, nobody likes you anyway. And she went on and on and on. I told my wife, I said, you know, if I were the devil, I would jump on her if I didn't know anything about the Bible. She is a prime candidate for the devil. Seriously. I passed her lady for a good number of years, and she was that way. Negative. You couldn't get... I said, well, have you tried praying about this? She said, yes. And I said, well, what happened? She said, it got worse. <laughs> That's hard for me to believe, but somebody could be that. It got worse. <laughs> I got so aggravated at her one time, I went to the house. I told my wife, I said, you know what? She would make an ideal cover girl for the book of Lamentations. I just never in my life seen anybody so down and out. We learned a chorus entitled, It's Amazing What Praising Can Do. How many of you know that? Some of you. I don't worry when things go wrong. Jesus, oh, I've got the words now. Jesus fills my heart with the song. Well, I was so excited about that chorus, and I was singing it, and just as I said, I don't worry when things go wrong, guess what happened? My car was just like it went out of gear. Uh, and it wouldn't go any further. I had to stop inside the road and walk to the church. I was a good ways from the church, a hot summer day. Transmission had gone out. had to have it towed in. So <clears throat> my wife and I were talking about that coming down here, and I reached up and inadvertently hit the sunroof on the car and it, it went up a little ways and stopped and we couldn't get it down so I've been having to park underneath the canopy well I took this Buick that we have and I took it down to the Buick dealer and they said well we don't even touch those things they're so complicated you have to take it over to they gave me a couple of names and took it over to the body shop and he said oh it's a simple little thing Cost about sixty dollars. Pick it up tomorrow afternoon. I went in yesterday afternoon and called, and they said, "Oh, it's much more than that." I said, "Well, how much is it going to cost to get it fixed?" He said, "Are you seated?" I said, "Well, yes, I am." He said, eight hundred dollars just for a sunroof." I said, "You've got to be kidding!" I thought he was kidding me. So, oh no, I'm not kidding you. Eight hundred dollars. I said, well, what is it? how much does a new one cost? He said, well, they're $995. Oh, my. Why did I get that car with a sunroof in it? He said, the little motor in there is bad, and it's just about the size of this mic. He said, about two and a half inches, three inches in diameter. It costs $500. I thought you could buy a motor for the car for that. Well... I learned a long time ago, and I'm sure that most of you know this already, but there are two words that you need to know if you plan on making it in the rapture. And those two words are very simple. They are, so what? If you can't do anything about it, so what? Going to church and 
dance in the spirit and shout the victory and put the devil on the run. <clears throat> so what? Praise God. <laughs> I'm going to take a little bit different route today. And I'm taking it because I feel something really developing and building in the spirit. We felt it yesterday afternoon, and that service where Brother Sarton was preaching was very apparent that the devil was trying to win a victory. And this dear sister of ours had this attack, whatever it was, and we ended up lying her on the floor and gathering around praying. And would you believe the very thing that Satan thought would stop the message and destroy the service brought such great victory? Now you know what Paul was saying when he said, you can do nothing against the church but for the church. The very thing that Satan feels will put you on the run and destroy your faith if in the event you respond correctly can bring great victory to you. Praise God. I'd like you to stand at the reading of the Word. Turn to Romans, the 8th chapter. Oh, hallelujah. I do feel something great in God. I woke up early this morning. I felt it. I feel it right now. Praise God. So we're not going to be talking in the same vein that we have been talking. I told you tentatively I will talk to you about the Bible, the manual of life. And I want to do that before I leave because this is a real concern that I have. Many, many pastors are spending entirely too much time counseling with saints. And this simple little Bible lesson will eliminate about 99% of your need for counseling. And I hope to do that sometimes this week, but if for some reason the Holy Ghost does not allow, then so what? <laughs> Praise God. Romans, the 8th chapter, verse 28. We know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he did foreknow, he did also do he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called, and whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. Verse 31. What shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who or what can be against us? And I want to talk to you from the Bible on this subject. If God before us who can be against us God bless you you may be seated the word predestinate is used in the scripture and quite often people get really confused when they begin to read the Bible relative to this subject now all of us know 
that the church is predestined to glory. And we know that the world is predestined to the lake of fire. We know that there is a system that is carefully organized. It's called the world in the Bible. It comes from the Greek word cosmos, which means the system in which Satan has organized his kingdom. Now, I'm going to be talking about Satan somewhat this morning. It's, I, I usually do not do this because people get so excited about Satan that they forget about God. I just want to preface all the other remarks by making this little statement. We had a sister in our church that listened to some of John Todd's tapes and some of these wild, woolly things about Satan, and she got so hung up on it that, my, she, she just couldn't hardly live. She called me one morning, and she said, Brother Grant, I, something's happening here at my house. And I said, what's wrong? She said, well, the picture frames are all crooked on the walls, and it just looks like the, the window curtains and shades are all breathing. You know, she said, I slip out of bed and hide behind the bed and pray for a while. I said, oh, she said, what do you think it is? Well, she expected me to say nothing. Because she, you know, that's what she was expecting me to, to do. But I didn't say that. I said, it's probably the devil himself. So don't worry about it. Just turn over and go back to sleep. <clears throat> if God be for us, who can be against us? We know that the cosmos is destined for hell. But one of the greatest doctrines taught in the Bible is the doctrine of choice. The church is going to heaven. Do you choose to go to heaven with it? The world and Satan is going to hell. Do you choose to go there? Now, you can do that. There never has been a dispensation in which choice was not paramount. Before God even created this planet Earth, somewhere... Around the throne, when all of the angels were gathered, God gave those angels the power to decide. That's why we have evil in the world today. And when he made Adam and Eve and placed them in the garden, he gave them that supreme prerogative to choose. In every dispensation, he has given man the power 
to decide. And surprisingly, when the millennium sets in and Satan is bound for a thousand years and locked in chains in the lake of fire, and men's lives are prolonged on the earth, and there is great peace throughout the planet earth, there's something in the mind of God that says, I cannot allow these people to continue doing what they're doing without choice. And he gives them, at the end of the thousand years, the power to decide. Satan is then taken out of the bottomless pit and is allowed once again to roam the earth. And he deceives many. It is strange to me that people who have lived for God for almost a thousand years and have never known anything but peace would decide against God. But that does happen. So you are given this privilege today to choose. And when the final curtain falls and eternity rolls around, and time shall be no more, there will not be one person walking on gold that's there against choice. Everybody that's there will be there because they chose to be there. Now our faith makes the difference. Now let me say this before we go into the subject of faith. Several years in my ministry, I pastored with the idea that I had to make all decisions for people. And, of course, I trained our people that I should make decisions for them. I helped them in every area of their life. In the last few years, knowing that I could never pastor but a limited number of people, I began to pray about this. And I feel definitely that God has impressed me that really the most I can do for any individual is supply him with enough Bible information to make the right decision. But ultimately, the decision is yours. Now, it's my job to thoroughly reason with you according to the Scripture, to teach the Word of God to you. But it's your job to decide what you want to do with it. And when knowledge comes into us, faith then begins to grow. And it's our faith in God that makes the difference. Now I want to just uh, explain something to you. Uh, most of you probably know this already, but scientifically speaking, if a tree fell in a forest and there's absolutely nobody there, it makes no sound at all. Scientifically. 
Now that's kind of mind-boggling. Because the sound is actually made inside of you. Now that tree sends forth vibrations, but the true sound is made inside of you. This brother that said he could not hear, whatever the problem was, wherever the obstruction was, God corrected that so that his brain could receive the vibrations and determine or make the sound. And the Spirit of God breathes upon us. But yet that faith is generated within us. We pick up the Spirit of God, and that's the purpose of the Spirit of man. The Spirit of man is reaching out to God continually, and we feed our souls and feed our own spirit and our inner being on the spirit world. Appetite is acquired by eating, not by fasting. If you've ever wanted to eat a big Thanksgiving day, the best thing that you could do to ensure that you're really going to pig out is to eat two or three days real heavy beforehand. Because you trigger that appetite. And that appetite is saying, I want more food. I want more food. Fast two or three days, and the mechanism inside of you says you don't need that much food. Skip breakfast Thanksgiving morning and sit down, and you'll fill up your plate, and you'll say, I guess my eyes were bigger than my stomach. I, I just can't take so much of this. This is the reason why that church attendance is so important, because you come in here, and the preacher preaches the word of the Lord, and the Spirit goes forth, you see, Jesus said, the words that I speak unto you, they are spirit, and they are life. And you begin to feed your inner man on that. And the more you feed your inner man on it, the more appetite you acquire. If you want to develop a distaste for God, stay away from the house of God. You'll find that your appetite will die. Jesus said, you drink of this water... He said, you will thirst again, but I have water that you can drink of and never thirst again. Basically, what he's saying is you develop an appetite, and you do not drink as a result of starving. But the more you drink is, is because of an acquired appetite. doesn't mean that you take a little sip of the Holy Ghost and turn your back and walk away and, and never sip again. Paul put it like this. He said, who can know the mind of God? Who can know the Spirit of God? Who can discern the Spirit of God? Save the Spirit of man which is in man. We come in the house of God, we say, we feel your Spirit, O Lord. Quite often a sinner will be nearby and he gets a little confused because he doesn't feel what you're feeling. Now, all you have to do is encourage him to start wiggling his toe or moving his finger or clapping his hands or responding. And get him in two or three services and after a while he's going to feel what you feel. 
And isn't it true that you could drive up to an A&W root beer stand someplace and maybe the kids would have the radio going and the rock music going and they're out there just a-jigging? And you say, what's turning them on? Why do they feel what they're feeling? It's because they're feeding their spirit on something supreme to that spirit, but not God. Satan, who is also of the spirit world, is ministering to them. We don't feel a thing because we don't have an appetite for it. But all you have to do to acquire an appetite for that, turn your radio on and force feed yourself a little bit. Or perhaps just forget about what's on the radio and you'll find out it won't be long before you're tapping your toes to it. And you're feeding your spirit on it. And after a while, you develop an appetite for it and you feel you've got to have it also. Faith is moving inside of us. God's Spirit moves upon us and produces that faith as we begin to feed our spirit upon it. There's a war in this spiritual world. Truthfully, the war that's between Satan and God, that's what we're going to talk about. It's not really at this time between Satan and God, but it seems to be more between man and Satan. And there is a reason why. You see, when the serpent came to the garden and talked with Eve, and Eve fell into this temptation or this sin, and when Adam followed suit, a curse was pronounced upon Satan. And I believe in the early chapters of the book of Genesis that this was very prophetic. The serpent was to crawl upon his belly and eat of the dust of the earth. I believe this is saying that there is a war waged against man by Satan simply because man gave his heart to Satan. So as a result, we came out of dust. And the appetite that Satan has today in all the fallen angels is mankind. He eats away at our flesh with undesirable conditions and such and tempts us. We happen to be his prey or his bait or his supper. You see, he has already lost the war with God. There's no doubt about it. He knows that. This is why that the maniac of Gadara, having legions, those legions could speak forth and say, Son of man, have you come to torment us before our time? He already knows that he is the eternally defeated foe that will be bound hand and foot and cast forever in the lake of fire. And he knows that his time is limited, but he has acquired an appetite 
for me and for you. Now, there are a few aspects about Satan that I'd like to talk about, and I believe that this will help you in your relationship with God. In Isaiah, the 14th chapter, we read the story about Lucifer, who was one of the archangels. Now, before God created the heavens and the earth, he had archangels. God has always had a government. You may ask me, what was the purpose of the government back then? I simply do not know. But I do know that there was a government then, and there never has been a dispensation in which there has not been a government. And I also know that in eternity there will be a government. In Hebrews, the 13th chapter, verse 8, the Bible says, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday and today and forever. Now, I'd really like to use this scripture in a little bit different light later on. But the truth of the matter, the purest of context teaches us that this scripture, while it may be true about the miraculous, and we need more of the miraculous, that it's actually talking about government. Verse 7, listen to this, the scripture that precedes it. Remember them which have the rule over you, who have spoken unto you the word of God, whose faith follow, considering the end of their conversation. Sandwiched in between is the verse 8, which I will omit right now. Verse 9, Be not carried about with divers and strange doctrines, for it is a good thing that the heart be established with grace, not with meats, which have not profited them that have been occupied therein. And then verse 17, Obey them that have the rule over you, and submit yourself, for they watch for your souls, as they must give an account, that they may do it with joy and not with grief, for that is unprofitable for you. In the purest of context, Hebrews 13:8 is speaking of divine order, that there has always been divine order in the kingdom of God. There's always been the chain of command. There was a chain of command before this world and time began. In each dispensation, there has been a chain of command. There is a chain of command in this dispensation. There will be a chain of command in the millennium. And there will be a chain of command in eternity. For God will make the bride of Christ to reign as kings and priests with him forever and ever and ever. Now, I don't understand all the ramifications about it. But I do know that that is a Bible truth. If there's anybody here that fights against authority and you fight against the chain of command, you're in the wrong place. Praise God. Praise God. And so before God allowed the planet Earth to come into existence, or before He spoke it into existence, He had a chain of command. He had angels and cherubims. And he had archangels. Now, according to Scripture, we find the names of three archangels mentioned. I do not believe that the Scripture states that there are only three. There may be more than that. We find Gabriel and Michael and Lucifer. Now, 
I don't know what Michael's job was prior to this, but I do know that the Bible tells us in the book of Revelation that it was Michael that fought against the dragon or against Lucifer, and he took with him a third of all of the stars of the angels of heaven with him. We also know that Gabriel seems to be the angel that brings great joy through great announcements, he brings adoration and glory to God. Now, we hear this statement quite often that Gabriel's going to blow the trumpet. Well, I don't really know if that is Scripture or not. If somebody can find that in the Bible, maybe you, you can come and show me. You may say, are you saying it's not? Oh, I really haven't looked for it. So, <laughs> it, it might be in there, but I don't think that it is. I think as many times as I've read the Bible, I would have run across it. But we do know that when we read the account of Lucifer, that uh, there is something given in this account that might tell us what his job was. In Isaiah the 14th chapter, verse 12, the Bible says, How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground, which didst weaken the nations? For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend unto heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of heaven. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation. Now above the stars of heaven, this is speaking about angels, the messengers. He wanted to be much greater and much bigger and much more important than all of them. Not exalting himself above God, but equal with God. The Bible, however, calls him the son of the morning. Now, if you look back at the early chapters of the book of Genesis, you will find in the creative days that God made the first day, and there was a period of light, and there was a period of darkness. The Bible says the evening and the morning were the first day. And then you will find the second day. The evening and the morning were the second day. Now, I don't know how long those days were, but I, I am convinced that they were not 24-hour days. They could have been shorter. They could have been longer. Now, the reason why I say that is because it was not until the fourth day that God made the sun and the moon to serve for days and night, nights and time and seasons. So there, God set the planet Earth in order on the fourth day. Now, the first day consisted of a period of light and a period of darkness. The second day, the third, the fourth. Uh, I personally believe that every day after the fourth day was a 24-hour day. I may be a little bit old-fashioned in my theology, but uh, the reason why is because the fifth day had a period of light and a period of darkness, and the sixth day had a period of light and a period of darkness. Now, you will find the Hebrew word in Isaiah 14, 12 is a different word altogether. But... It means light when it speaks of morning. It does not eliminate the first Hebrew word. It does mean light as we see illumination. And you could see all the stars, and all of a sudden you see one of them fall from heaven. As quickly as you could possibly think, the light disintegrates, 
It's snuffed out. It vanishes. It is no more. And this is what Jesus was saying. I beheld Satan as that bright light. Lost his light. Little wonder then that Satan is called in the Scripture a liar, a deceiver, and the father of all lies because he's lived on both sides of the fence, my friend. He is a master at deception, a master at darkness. And the Bible says when he gets a hold of you and quenches the light inside of you, oh, how great is that darkness! Hello, Moshandala Bahatai. Praise God, praise God, praise God. And there are scriptures throughout the Bible that warn us about angels. Paul put it like this in Galatians 1 verse 8. He said, if I or an angel from heaven come preaching any other gospel than the gospel that I preached unto you, let him be accursed. The reason Paul said this is because there are some good angels and there are some bad angels. Some today will come and minister strength to you and wisdom to you and power to you, but some will come and minister darkness to you. In Revelation, the ninth chapter, verse 11, the Bible speaks of Satan. He's called a badon or a polion, the Hebrew and the Greek, which simply means destroyer. Jesus had this to say in John 10, 10, The thief cometh not but to kill and steal and destroy. But he said, I come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. Now, people living in other dispensations prior to this Holy Ghost dispensation, they had a little light of God. There's no doubt about it. Each dispensation, more light was revealed to them. But God knew that something needed to be done. Could someone get me a glass of water? If you would do that, I would appreciate it. So as a result, uh, you see... God did not plan for man to sin. When I say plan, uh, it was not His will for us to sin. It, it, you know, in John the first chapter, let's just turn to John the first chapter, and we'll we'll look at that a little, a little bit. In John the first chapter, the Bible says, "In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God." Now, the Greek word for our English word word is logos. Thank you. That simply means a plan, a concept, a blueprint, or a pattern. When this tabernacle was built, no doubt about it, the architect that built this did not put into this plan or into the will of this structure a particular design that's created to entrap some worker. In other words, everything is bolted together correctly, it's welded together right, it's structurally put up. And the instructions are placed there as to how it should be put up. So the architect did not purposely design some fault in the system to cause some worker to fall down. But if in the event someone is neglectful, and they do not put it together as the plan called for, then naturally 
you will find that uh, people's health is at stake. You've got to be very careful. And if in the event someone fell from this, there's a phone on the job site, you can call 911, you can get an emergency crew out to take care of the situation. It was not God's will that man sinned. But God knew that he wanted to give man a choice. Built into the system was not a weak point in which man would fall, not an entrapment. But God was saying, if in the event, however, instructions are not followed, and someone is neglectful, even before the foundation of the world, in the concept, in the mind, on heaven's blueprint, there was a plan or a pattern so that man could be picked up and hauled to the hospital and nourished back to good, solid, sound health. And that medic was Jesus Christ himself. Oh, praise God. So even before man sinned, Jesus Christ was the Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world. It was in God's plan to pick him up if in the event he did. But God, knowing that the archangels had sinned and took with him a third part of all of the angels, there seems to be one area of responsibility that God would never trust another celestial being with, and that is to bring illumination or light or revelation to the human race. The Bible says all things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of man. The light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended not. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. The same came for a witness to bear witness of that light, that all men through him might believe. He was not that light, but he was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. This is the reason why that Peter, in 2 Peter, the first chapter, verse 19, he calls Jesus Christ the day star. This is the reason why Revelation 2.16 calls Jesus Christ the bright and the morning star. Because Lucifer, being cast out of heaven and became a deceiver, God in his mind, in his plan, said, I will no longer trust celestial beings with the responsibility of bringing light or revelation to any more of our creatures. I will come in flesh, robed in flesh, and bring it to them myself. Nobody else is going to do it for me. I will come and do it myself. Oh, glory to God. You see, Matthew connects Jesus Christ Back to David saying he is a son of David, a Jew indeed. And Luke connects him back to Adam saying that he is a son of man, a member of the human race indeed. But John goes all the way back past Adam. He goes all the way back to the very bosom of God. And he connects Jesus Christ to God himself 
In him was life, and the life was the light of man. The Bible says the same was with God. He was God with us. Let's call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted as God with us. The day star, the bright and morning star, has brought revelation and light and illumination to the human race today. Oh, let's lift up his hands and let's praise the Lord. <laughs> oh, God, and here we are as the last generation of people that will walk the planet Earth before the rapture. I believe that. Brother Travis, I believe with all my heart. I really do. In June of this year, I call all of our department heads together. As serious a meeting as we've ever had in Wisconsin. I was dead serious. I feel. You see, Wisconsin is about the same land size, square miles, as Mississippi. I don't know how many churches you have here, but about 165 churches. I don't know what the population is. About two and a half million. Wisconsin, we have 53 churches. And over five million people. I said, listen, we can no longer afford to take this as a game. This is real life. It's heart-beating, pulsating life. And people are lost. Now, what are we going to do about this? You know what we can do? We can drift from camp meeting to camp meeting, from conference to conference, and from service to service. And, and, and just be satisfied with the status quo. But there is a responsibility placed upon the shoulders of the human race today. Let me explain that. You remember in the Old Testament when Jephthah, the judge, came home after making a vow unto God that whatsoever came out to meet him, that he would offer it up as a sacrifice unto the Lord? Now you and I know that he actually did not offer up his daughter as a sacrifice. The reason why is because at this time the Mosaic Law had been installed in Israel and human sacrifices were forbidden. That was not so in the days of, of Abraham when Isaac was to be offered up. But it was in the days of Jephthah. And the Bible tells us that annually, he had no son, annually, the Bible tells us that, that the friends of this daughter, they went up on the mountain and they bewailed her virginity. It appears that what happened was that she was turned over to the service of God in the tabernacle to be a perpetual virgin, never to know a man, and never to have a child. One of the great joys of all families was to, to, to bring forth a, especially a son, but if not a son, to, 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 to have a child, a daughter. One of the great joys of today, see, I'm a young man, I'm only 49 years old. I've got three boys, they're all married, and I have six grandkids. Take those little grandkids in my arm, and I, you know, last week little Derek stayed with us. We had our camp, and I took him to camp. And the reason why I like to hold him because everybody comes up and says he looks just like Grandpa. Boy, I'll tell you, Brother Spirit, that makes me feel good. Makes my day. And then my son, who is six foot two, uh, a great big strong guy, walks up beside me, and and they say, and this must be your son. And then my oldest son, John comes to camp and, and one of our evangelists never having seen him looked out and said that must be brother Grant's son out there and as long as this man's alive John Grant will 
walked the planet Earth. Now, that makes me feel good. See, this, this was the situation. And, and you see, in the days of, of Jacob, this is the reason why that that precious wife, Rebecca, uh, wailed and wailed and wailed. And, and this, is the reason, this is the reason why, see, that, uh, that, that people were so concerned. They wanted to pass on to the next generation all of their values and all of their culture and such. There was a reason why that uh, Abraham uh, sent his servant back to the land of Haran uh, to get a a kindred and bring them back. There was a reason why. Heathens were all around, and certainly uh, this lady was not not a worshiper of Jehovah. No, no, not at all. But uh, get someone with like values and someone with the same culture, and let's keep this thing alive. And so... The promise of the Messiah is given in Isaiah 53. And the Bible goes to say this, and I'm going to read some. Who hath believed our report, and to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness, and when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of man, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hit our... We hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs, carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken and smitten of God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquity. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes we are healed. Oh, how beautiful. Oh, we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord hath laid upon us, laid upon him, rather, the iniquity of all of us. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before his shear is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who shall declare his generation? Basically what the prophet is saying while he was yet just a tender young man, all the sacrifices that he would make for the human race before he ever reached the age in which he felt and his family felt it would be profitable for him to take a bride, they took him and killed him. Now, such a great man, who shall declare his generation? Who's going to keep it alive? Who's going to pick up his job and do what he's supposed to do? John answers that. That was the true light which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. He came into his own, and his own received him not. But as many as received him, To them gave he power to become the sons of God. It's answered in verse 12 of John 1. Who shall declare his generation? This is the reason why that Jesus told us Ye are the light of the world. I commission into your hands.
the responsibility of taking the light that you receive when you receive the baptism of the Holy Ghost to all men everywhere. Angels could not do it. I say angels could not do it. An angel of the Lord appeared unto a man in Acts the 10th chapter and talked to this man and he said, What must I do to be saved? And the angel of the Lord would not even open his mouth. It's not my job. I can't do it. It's forbidden territory for me. But send for one named Peter whose surname is Simon. He is a job on a housetop. He'll come down here, Brother Spears, and give you words whereby thee and the household shall be saved. Oh, God of heaven. This is the reason why in Revelation, the second and third chapter, when the pastors were addressed in the church, they were called angels. The word angel really mean messengers or messengers of light in this case. That it's the primary responsibility of the man of God that stands behind the pulpit to offer you enough information or enough illumination or enough revelation for you to make the right decision. And once you made the right decision and given your heart to God, it is your responsibility then to take this and open somebody else's mind and somebody else's heart. This is no game. It's the only plan that God has for man to be saved. Oh, Shandarahatai, let's lift our hands and worship you. <laughs> Oh, God. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. <laughs> but we have a problem. There's another side of the coin. There's another side of the coin. There is a devil that walks on the planet Earth to deceive. The most that Satan can do to any individual is deceiving. First John, the fourth chapter, verse 4, the Bible says, Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. I want to talk about opposites just for a moment. We generally think of the opposite of north as what? South. We think of the opposite of east as what? West. The opposite of up is what? Down. The opposite of right is left. The opposite of bitter is sweet. The opposite of joy is sadness or sorrow. Now, <clears throat> when we look in the Scripture, there are some terms that sometimes we get a little mixed up on. For an example, John the Baptist was to come up on the scene, and John the Baptist was to make a straight path to the Lord. Isn't that right? <clears throat> make a straight path to the Lord. John the Baptist was to 
take the high hills and crush them down and take the valleys and bring them up. Take the right and the left-hand side and make a straight path to God. Now, that was his responsibility. Now, if we look at the problem that existed in the religious world at the times of Jesus, there's no doubt about it. The Pharisees were extremely proud people. See, the Bible says, Pride goeth before fall, and a haughty spirit before destruction. Everybody look up here at me. Would you do that? So John the Baptist was to do something that no other prophet has done. He came hard and heavy attacking the religious scene of his day. And so he was going to take those proud Pharisees and he was going to knock them down. However, there were some people on the opposite end of the pole and he was to pick them up. Now let me just ask you a question, but nobody answer right now. What is the opposite of pride? Most people say humility. That's not true. Not according to Scripture. The opposite of pride is shame. Shame comes as a result of the judgments of God or condemnation from sin. See, there were a lot of people living in shame. The woman caught in adultery. Now, shame comes as a result of condemnation or the judgments of God resting upon the proud. But it doesn't cure the problem. Because the correct choice has not been made. Let me further explain. You've got question marks all over your face. Okay. Let's say that I drive my brand new white shiny Cadillac into this camp meeting. I want to make sure I park it right out front by Brother Travis's car and by the front door so that everybody drives by, whether you go right or left, you can see it. Let's assume, however, that I am very poor. Let's assume I don't have anything. Let's assume that God has never blessed me with anything nice. But yet my perspective relative to material things is not right. So I drive my old rusted out beat up wreck to church. I very quietly pull in, trying not to race the motor for fear that somebody will notice me. I drive all the way to the very back in the woods and stop, hoping nobody will see my car. The truth of the matter is, both of these men have the same problem. They just live on the opposite ends of the pole. And the ministry of Jesus Christ was to pick up those that were shamed and push down those that were proud and create a straight path. That straight path that leads to God is the humble path. Humility is ground zero with God. It's the reference point. 
If I ask you, what is the opposite of ten? Zero being the reference point. Most of you knowing something about math, you would say minus ten. Because ten is graduated ten notches on the positive side and minus ten goes from zero back the other way. What is the opposite of 50 degrees Fahrenheit? Being zero is the reference point. Minus 50 is the opposite. Is that right? Now follow along with me very carefully. My time's just about up. In fact, I think it already is up. But I've just got one or two things that I need to say before we move on in this service. So we see that sometimes... We don't look at the reference point correctly. Consequently, it's hard for us to evaluate things in this life. John is saying that Calvary is the reference point of all of life. That everything is measured upon the basis of Calvary. Whosoever shall fall upon the rock shall be broken. Ground zero reference point. But upon whom the rock shall fall, shame, pushing him below the reference point. He shall be ground like powder. If a man exalted himself, he shall be abased, pushed below the reference point. You're going to miss Calvary altogether. But if a man will humble himself, Submit himself. Repent. Walk that straight road. He shall someday be exalted. I said all that to say that the opposite of bitter is sweet. But you and I know very well that some things can be sweeter than some things can be bitter. But that I mean, you put a whole lot of sugar in something to make it sweet and a little bit of something bitter to make it just a tinge. And it does not gravitate the opposite way as much because of what you put into it. Now this is important that you understand this. And you and I know that sadness is the opposite of joy. But someone that's just been given that bright, shiny Cadillac and they dance all over the floor in their new home, they are much happier than the little boy is sad that has the little toy taken away from him. And if you see someone in the funeral parlor sobbing over a lost loved one. And he is convulsing. He can't stand himself. I've lost my wife or my child or my loved one. And yet you see someone riding the carousel down at the fair. And he's got a big smile on his face. You can't really say, Brother Kraft, that those are on the opposite poles. 
can't say that. And the reason why is because, you see, the reference point is where you're neither sad nor happy. You're just blasé, neither one. What are you saying, Brother Grant? I'm saying this, that for too long we apostolics have thought that the opposite of God is Satan. Not true. I say not true. In fact, when Satan was kicked out of heaven, God did not even turn a finger to do it. He called upon Michael and the archangels to do it. And Michael and two-thirds of all the angels warred against Lucifer and kicked him out. The prophet of old had this to say in Isaiah the 40th chapter verse 17 that God would make Israel as nothing. And then he goes on to say less than nothing. Now less than nothing is a zero with a rim rubbed off. They don't count at all. In other words, they gravitate past zero to the minus side. That's where Satan is. But I'm here to tell you in the closing moments of this service that regardless of how you equate his power and how you look at his wickedness, there is a limit to what he can do. There is a way in which he can be measured. The reason why that there can be a judgment day for Satan is because that God has a way of measuring him. His iniquity is just so far down the scale. His deception is just so far down the scale. But when it comes to God and His glory and His power, the Bible says He can give us joy, unspeakable, no way to measure it. No way it can be judged. This is the reason Paul said, follow after charity. He speaks of the fruit of the Spirit. And he says, of such there is no law. No way to judge it. He can give you joy unspeakable and full of glory. He can give you love that goes beyond comprehension. Oh, and I'm here to tell you, brothers and sisters, you'll never get depressed on the modest scale to what God can reach down and pick you up because He has no equal. Isaiah, the 40th chapter, the 21st, 25th verse, the Bible says, Who is equal with God? He has no opposition. Greater is He that's within you than He that's within the world. If God be for us, who can be against us?
the Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Come on, let's worship the Lord again. Just lift your hands and praise the Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Praise God. Worship the Lord again. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Praise God. Amen. Amen. Isn't this wonderful? You can be seated. Amen. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 17 said, Therefore, if any man be in Christ Jesus, he is a new creature. Amen. All things have passed away, and behold, all things are new. Thank God. Amen. I, I believe I know what that means. Amen. A brand new creature. A brand new life. Start living a new life. Worship with us as we sing, I just started living. I just started living. 